I would like to acknowledge the Gurringai people and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. The Gurringai people are the traditional owners of this land where we meet today. Welcome to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives and an episode I've called The Power of Hope, which I have taken from a sentence in the book Freeing My Family, written by Saddam, a Uyghur, who just wanted to be reunited with his family, and Michael Bradley, a human rights lawyer at Mark Lawyers, who played an integral role in making it happen. Also with me today is Susan Barton from MTA Travel, who was one of the cast of many who put their skills into overdrive to make this possible. Welcome to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. The host, Karen Sander, has the privilege of interviewing individuals from all walks of life, each with their own powerful and inspiring stories. The guests share their life experiences, and in doing so, they celebrate the transformative magic of storytelling. To learn more, visit www.thestoryroom.au and explore the private membership area, the Backstage Pass. Hope is a complex concept, one that involves optimism, faith, motivation, resilience and anticipation. And I know from reading Freeing My Family, hope was the driving force. Welcome, Saddam, Michael Bradley and Susan Barton to this episode of Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. Thank you. Thank you. There was actually an army of people involved in putting this together, not just you lot. It was a huge amount of people, your office, your staff, Michael, and many other people that came together to make sure that Nadilla, your wife, Saddam, and your child, Lofty, managed to come to Australia to be reunited with you. Michael, I want to start with you. Uyghurs are from a remote part of China. Can you help us to understand where this region is and how many people live there and how they came to be in this region? If you think about the map of China and go to the furthest left extent, so it's the furthest west part of China bordering um, onto Central Asia and so it's a long way from Beijing, long way from the coast and has been part of China politically for a long time, you know, hundreds of years, but ethnically, culturally, religiously, quite distinct. Um, the majority of the population in what is now called Xinjiang province are Uyghur people, and Uyghurs have really nothing in common with the Chinese um, people, including ethnically. They are Central Asian, they, the majority, vast majority Muslim, um, they speak a, a language which is Turkic. In, in origin, completely different cultural practices and no shared history. But they've been a, an occupied people for a, for a long, long time and, and have never been really an independent entity. Their history in sort of more recent times, and this sort of dates back to the 80s, uh, 1980s and onwards, has been one of sort of progressive repression by the, the central Chinese government as part of a, a long-running campaign to suppress their culture, their religion, their, their 
independent identity, and that's been something that's sort of ramped up over over time, and particularly under Xi Jinping, the current Chinese leader and the current government. That's really accelerated from the 2007-2009, and really ramped up in 2017 into what has been arguably accurately described as a genocide. Well over a million Uyghur people have been detained in um, detention centres and retraining camps within Xinjiang, um, many of them sent to other parts of China, and their, essentially their society and their social fabric has been ripped apart. Uh, and they've been living under these extraordinarily repressive circumstances for a long time now. It's sort of attracted a fair bit of international attention, but it hasn't changed for the better. Well, one of the first um, times I really knew that Uyghurs were a population of people in the world, and most recently, Saddam, I've been near that area in Mongolia, trekking in the Altai Mountains. So I sort of have a, a little bit of an idea of how remote the area is. I was there this year. But Sophie uh, McNeil, and that's how you came into this whole picture um, Sue, she's a well-respected journalist and she made a documentary for Four Corners four years ago that made a lot of the world, or gave us the opportunity to learn who the Uyghurs were and the issue that they had in Xinjiang and, uh, and that it is a very remote area of China. But Saddam, can you share a bit about your background and your personal journey? I'm Sajjad Abdusalam. I was born in Urumqi, which is capital city of Xinjiang. I was raised and born there and until 18 years old. So I came to Australia in 2009 when I was 18. You saw a photo that um, attracted you to go back to your hometown. It was a photo of a woman. Uh, it's, she's, uh, her name is Nadila, which is my wife. <laughs> it is um, 2015. I met her on Instagram. So one of my friends put the photo with uh, with Nadila and then she was like, she's just so beautiful. <laughs> just want to know her number. And then, yeah, that's how we start talking. And then just want to see her on person. So that's why I went back in 2015. And what was the journey back for you like and, and being back in, in your homeland at that time? Oh, it's totally different since I left in 2009, especially... Uh, 2015, there was uh, cameras everywhere. There's a checkpoint, people checking your ID. They check your passport. Even they check your phone. My phone being seized by the police a couple of times when I was there because I've got uh, like a WhatsApp and Instagram in my phone. So I don't know how they know you got to that apps in your phone, but you'll just get the call from the police station and then they tell you to go there. And then, and the funny thing is, the people, they're already used to it. They don't uh, complain. They just do whatever the um, government tell them to do. But for us, like we came from this free country, and then suddenly people start checking your IDs, even you go to shopping center, or check your phones, check your apps. It just makes you really uncomfortable. Were the people themselves, did, it, did they feel, did it feel different for you, the way they were acting and? yeah. Because um, after I left in 2009, beginning, beginning of 2009, there was a big protest happened in the 7th of, in, in July in 2009. So there was a, 
lots of my mates been taken by the police and lots of things happened. They cut, even the government cut off the internet like almost two weeks or a month. In 2015, when I go back, when I tried to ask my friends what happened in 2009, which is six, seven years ago, they just, they don't want to talk about it. They just want to escape from that topic. No one say anything like, uh, they, they go to me like, oh, people going to listen. I don't oh. want to talk about this story. So it makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. And even some of my friends doesn't want to meet with me, see me, because I'm from overseas, because that's going to put them in danger, like put them in trouble. It must be a, a horrible thing to be scared of just having a conversation with someone that you know. Yeah. For you having lived here in yeah. Australia, that must have been very unusual. I totally different. You know, even when I was, I used to drive Uber in Sydney, I tell some Aussies my stories while driving Uber and they don't even believe me. Like, like I'm lying. How, like, they go to me, how this is possible in 21st century? So, but I don't blame them, you know. Michael, like, there's probably many countries a bit like that, yes, that really have a lot of control over the population. Yeah, I mean, it's not a new thing. I think Xinjiang is, is a particularly extreme example of, of control as, a, as a, like, intrusive control, like the, the extent to which the, the Chinese government has gone to exercise control over every aspect of the lives of the people in Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, to the extent of, for example, they basically confiscated everyone's passports. They, they're all subject to, have been subject for a long time to police checks every time they leave their house. They, there are laws about um, how they can practice their religion. There are laws about what they can, the names they can give their children, about what they can wear, what they can't wear. There, there's constant monitoring of all electronic communications, so all social media is monitored. You know, it, it is a police state existence for the people there um, with the threat, the very real threat of arrest, detention, and in many, many cases, disappearance. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty extreme scenario. You must be always looking over your shoulder in that situation, wondering who's going to knock on your door or, you know, it, it's a, an incredibly scary situation to be in especially from our point of view here, because we don't live like that. Well, it's foreign to us. I don't, you know, I don't think from an Australian perspective it's possible to even get much of a grasp of what that must be like. It's so removed from our experience. I mean, you think about the things we complain about in terms of government, you know, overreach, you know, over-policing and things, yeah, we're on different planets. I'm not going to go into the whole story, Saddam, of all the places that you went to um, with Nadella, you moved away from Xinjiang for a while, but you did marry Nadella. You actually left the country. You went to Turkey. Is that correct? Yeah, first I've, I've went, we went to state, US, yep. where my older sister are. After we stayed there one month and then went to the Turkey. And then eventually you came back to Xinjiang and then can you just fill us in on what happened then? After that, I didn't come back to Xinjiang. I came back to Australia. Oh, you went to, yeah, okay, yes. Yeah. 
Okay, can you tell us what happened then? When we were in Turkey, Nadila was pregnant with Lutfi, and she was just homesick, you know, and, and also we got the not much money left to spend because at the time, Turkey was in a really bad situation as well. It's hard to find job, like everything. End of the day, I was thinking to, you know what, maybe I'll come back to Australia and uh, fix my, sort my things out and then while making money and then apply visa for Nadila. And then Nadila can go back to Xinjiang where she can stay with her parents, more comfortable. And then thought maybe when Luffy born or before she born, I can go back to Xinjiang and meet her again. No one knows like once Nadila left, like actually right after two weeks situation in Xinjiang getting worse, like people, the government start taking everyone's passport including Nadila's, didn't know that it's going to be my last time seeing Nadila. And so you were thinking about going back at this stage? I was, I was thinking, definitely I was thinking to going back, going to be with uh, my son when he was born, but my visa was rejected a couple of times from Chinese embassy, so I couldn't get the visa. And also the things in Xinjiang getting really messed up, like even the Australian citizen being held off, Canadian citizen being held up. So it was just also the dangerous to going back as well. And how were you actually feeling in yourself at this time? Uh, at that time? Really? Yeah. I was scared. I was scared because when Nadila told me government start taking people's passports, oh, but they're going to give it back when we're leaving. But because I knew that's not how Chinese government operate. You know, once they take something, they're not going to give it back. Mm-hmm. So, but I didn't tell Nadila... Like, I don't want her to be worried too much as she's pregnant. Also, the people listening my phone. But I knew something bad going to happen. Like, I don't... In my mind, I don't think Nadila going to get her passport back easily, you know. Either I need to be there or... Yeah, that, that's all in my mind at the time. And it must have been tough living here and, and just going about your daily work. Yeah, I was struggling to focus as well, like mentally. And... We also start hearing on the news people was being taken to the concentration camp. There's a forced labor, uh, including my dad's cousin, my uncle's been missing, especially people who've been to Turkey, Saudi Arabia, any Muslim countries, they've been locked up in the concentration camp, some of them in the prison. Mm. Like, for example, my friend Almas, who was also in the book featured, his wife sentenced to seven and a half years jail just because of studying in the Saudi Arabia. And they lost the baby in the prison. At the time, every single Uyghur in overseas, I think, struggling, you know, mentally. Like, I can't Mm. really focus at at work. Like, what if that kind of thing has happened to Nadila? What if Nadila had been taking... it's my worst, uh, like, Your worst nightmare. point of my life, yeah. Saddam, in the book you talked about four angels. Who was the first angel that you met? I would say Sarah, Sarah Ruby. She's the first one trying to help me. Oh, don't worry, I'm going to bring you I'm going to make sure your wife and son are going to be here. Like, she's, she, she's so positive. You know, every time I go see Sarah, I feel better. I know inside it's not going to be easy bringing wife some from the Chinese government, but she always gives me that positive energy. Yeah. 
there was a point of just going to her house every day. Like, I call her Auntie Sarah. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, she's the first angel. And she gave you a lot of hope. She introduced you to Michael. Yes. If you're interested in getting more involved in our community, connecting with people who share your interests, you can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. So, Michael, as a human rights lawyer, you came to meet Saddam through Sarah. Did you actually understand the enormity of the case when you met Saddam? Yeah, so I'd known Sarah for a while and she she's an advocate and she specialises in hopeless cases, frankly, and sort of collects them. And she <laughs> she contacted me about Saddam's case and had sort of, you know, told me the story and obviously at a human level you couldn't not connect to that. It's a pretty extraordinary situation and um but you know, my initial reaction was, well, that's hopeless. I, I don't know what we can what we could do about that to help. So I actually initially said no, I don't think there's anything we can do. We can't help, but there is very persuasive. You know, the situation when I met Saddam was that Nadilla was was stuck in Xinjiang. Luchi was, I think, about ten months old, nine ten months old at that point. She'd been after Luchi was born. She'd been detained, taken in by the Chinese police. She had red flags because she'd been to a Muslim country, to Turkey. And in fact, under the law, one of the laws that the Chinese government had passed, travel to a, China, to, a to, um, to a Muslim country um, automatically deemed her to be a terrorist. So she'd already broken mm-hmm. the law um, and was and ordinarily would have been taken away and sent to to one of these camps and quite possibly disappeared. But because she was breastfeeding, they let her go at home but told her that when Lutfi turned one she would be taken back in again and Lutfi would be um, adopted out which happened which is what happened to a lot of Uyghur kids when their parents were both taken a lot of them just disappeared into the Chinese orphanage system so that was sort of that that date was pending that was that was only a couple of months away Saddam had with Sarah's help had been trying to get Australian citizenship for Lutfi because as a because Saddam's an Australian citizen, Lutfi was entitled to Australian citizenship by descent. But that had been knocked back by the government, the immigration department, and said no because Saddam couldn't prove paternity, he couldn't prove that he was Lutfi's father. And so that was sort of caught up in this bureaucratic nightmare. And so I agreed to take on the case to at least try to get citizenship for Lutfi because it seemed, I mean, that seemed obviously wrong. Like, obviously, Lutfi is his son. Obviously, you know, the government was being difficult unnecessarily about that. And so we thought, well, we can do that. We can we can clear that hurdle. And the, while that wouldn't get Lutfi out of China and it wouldn't get Nadilla out of China, it would at least give us a hook because if the Australian government recognised Lutfi as an Australian citizen, then it would have to at least care about him uh-huh. and you know, uh-huh. take at least diplomatic steps to try to, to um, do something for the family. So it seemed like sort of practically a worthwhile thing to do in terms of trying to get us closer to the, the end goal. But you know, 
I wasn't very optimistic about the the long term prospects of you know given what was happening in in Xinjiang and given how many people were caught up in this um, you know, lawfulness. So that's so that's what we how we got involved initially. We took on that case. We took that to court and won and got citizenship for Lutfi. So so we managed to tick that box. And there was a lot of going back and forwards to Parliament through this time. Yeah, after we got the citizenship, we then sort of turned to the political stage and that's when Stacey McNeil got involved, started working on the Four Corners, what became the Four Corners story. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch both got involved. They were both actively involved in the Uyghur situation and they were interested in, in Saddam's case. So we sort of started drawing together this coalition of interested parties to try to build a, a political media strategy to put pressure on the Australian government, to put pressure on the Chinese government, because that was, you know, there wasn't much else we could do legally. So really now it was about trying to engage public interest, political will, and, you know, build, sort of build momentum that way. And we had the... You know, the advantage that what, what we had was an extremely cute Australian citizen caught in a foreign country and you know, nobody could look at a photo of Lofty and not want to rescue him. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was sort of our key asset. And so, yeah, we, we, went, uh, we went down to Canberra. We timed that around the Four Corners story that um, and uh, his friend uh, Alma, who mentioned, was also caught up in this, came down with Amnesty and Craig Foster joined us. He, he volunteered his, mm. you know, his clout to, to help. Can you tell us Craig Foster, for those that don't know Craig, who is Craig? Yeah, so Craig's a former soccerer and very well-known soccer commentator who had become involved in a case not long before this where there was a, a professional soccer player uh, who's an Australian citizen who'd been detained in Thailand, they were going to hand him over to the Bahrain authorities. He was from Bahrain. He, he, he was a refugee who had come out from there and was had obtained Australian citizenship. And he'd been, I think he was on his honeymoon when he was detained in Bangkok and they were going to hand him over because Bahrain had put a, an Interpol notice on him because they claimed that he was a terrorist. Which was bullshit. And um, Craig had launched this global campaign out of nothing to save this guy. Uh, When he went to the UN in Geneva, he got lots of football players involved and created this massive momentum to save this poor guy and succeeded, managed to to rescue him. And I think that from that, Craig got really interested in refugee you know, mm. issues and um, he's just a great guy anyway. He'll always volunteer his time for any good cause and he came along and that was great and we, we met a whole bunch of politicians and and we were just knocking on every door we could find, pressing every possible button we could to mm. to keep the story alive, keep pressure on the government to not forget about it and to, you know, do what they needed to do or what they could do, you know, and credit where it's due, Foreign Minister at the time was Maurice Payne. She took a personal interest in Saddam's case and we'll never know exactly what went on behind the scenes in terms of diplomatic manoeuvrings and so on, but, uh, but I'm very certain that she, 
she worked very hard personally to to make a difference and you know, we're obviously very grateful to Amazing. So there really was an army out there, wasn't there, just making this actually happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Saddam, it is a huge army, like just not one person at all. There was a great team of you. But Saddam, is Michael the bearded angel? Yeah, of course, definitely. He's one of the <laughs> biggest angels. <laughs> I'm looking at your beard here. <laughs> yes, he's a bearded angel. Yeah. Um, so he was your second angel really after Sarah. What's Sarah's background? Why was she interested? She's a pure Aussie. She's like a blonde. Um, her personality is funny. She smokes. She must stop smoking. She's just... <laughs> and first, to be honest, first when I met her, oh, she really going to help me, you know, because I don't want to say that, but after I came to Australia, before I met those angels, I've been saying, some people told me, go back to your country go back where you come from, you know. So I've got that impression, like, Aussies hate us. Mm-hmm. Like, before I met these people. But, yeah, after I met Sarah, uh, Sophie, um, Sophie, Michael, that they changed a lot about perspective of what I think about Aussies. Not, I mean, not all of them actually is hate us, hate yeah. immigrants, yeah. you know. And Sarah is one, one of that kind of person. Michael, what does Sarah do? She's just a good person. She, she's one of these completely selfless individuals you find in these sectors who, you know, are not there for any reason other than to help. She, everything she has, she puts into supporting, you know, the most marginalised people in, in the community she works with. You know, asylum seekers and refugees who are caught in the margins of the system and just leverages every contact and opportunity she has to, to help. And she, as I said, she, she takes on the hopeless cases. <laughs> Saddam, you must have been hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> I was. <laughs> I mean, he was, Saddam was in a pretty bad, pretty bad state, and I, and I certainly think that Sarah saved his life multiple times because his situation was objectively desperate. As anybody would have in Saddam's shoes, he struggled. Worth bearing in mind that this saga took a long time when when Saddam, it took three and a half years. It's a long, long time, isn't it? It's a long time to keep that hope alive. Michael, your team at Marquee Law, they played a pivotal role in supporting Saddam, Nadilla and Lofty throughout this cause. Could you share some specific ways in which they contributed to the success? And and what do you think actually fueled them to get behind this? I mean, when I first met Saddam in our office, you know, I was really drawn to him. He's a really modest, you know, understated person and yeah, he doesn't ask for much. But I don't know, there was something about him that I, I just, uh, I was really drawn to. I think it's his genuineness and, and, and humility. And he's been a, I mean, the situation he was in, like, who couldn't want to help? Everyone wanted to help. But yeah, that was the story throughout. There were, at no point did we ask someone for help and get knocked back. And then the third angel was Sophie Saddam. What an amazing story about the Uyghurs that she helped to put together and 
give people like me an insight into what's happening in China. That's right. I think Sophie is not only the journalist, and she. When I met, I met lots of journalists, like they're all trying to tell my story to the world. But Sophie, she, like when I met her, I feel like she really cares. It's not only about the stories she wanna publish. It's about what change I can make on the stories, you know. So I went to lots of interviews, but I gave the first like real with my face interview to Sophie because I believe she really could help, even though like it's really dangerous move, mm-hmm. like putting my wife Nadila in risk. But if there's anyone else, any media, any journalist can help, I feel like that was gonna be Sophie. Mm-hmm. And also, Michael told me, like, if people want to listen, if government want to listen, Four Corners want to go. Well, I watched it a while ago and then I watched it again last week. So, you know, I have to keep these things in my mind when I'm working on something. And, you know, it's just an unbelievable situation. And she put it together so well. But then we come to the sort of the story where it's time finally that the Chinese government gives permission for Nadilla and Lofty to leave. That's not easy. What happens yeah. then? Especially that time is a COVID, like one of the co- highest time of the COVID. Airplane tickets are expensive. Not only expensive, people can't really leave from, from um, yeah. China directly to Australia. So that's when I met Susan through Sophie. So she's my fourth angel <laughs> to put everything together at the end. <laughs> well, it's an incredible, Sue, what you're able to do. So you've spent a lot of time working on projects with SBS and Dateline. So Sophie knew the work that you were doing to help people and especially her out of war zones and probably saved a few necks over the years <laughs> um, in, in working with people. Can you share a little bit about how did you get these flights organised? My connection with Sophie was through SBS, but um, she is a phenomenal person and journalist. And uh, when she was a young girl, I was sending her to Afghanistan and Iraq and getting her in and out of these war zones. So it was very, very difficult those days, as you can imagine, because as uh, Saddam said, she's blonde. And uh, (laughs) so she had to cover all up and anyway, so it was uh, very dangerous. Uh, She gave me a call this one day and she said, "Um, I've got a story for you. The thing is, though, you've got two weeks to do this. And then when she explained, I was like, holy heck, what do you mean two weeks? And I'm sure Michael will be able to explain the political side of that. But literally, there was like two weeks we had to do it. And um, I guess anyway, Sophie and I had had a lot of trust with each other. We developed trust. When I had that phone call, unfortunately, it was 2020 and COVID was in full swing with lockdowns. So at that time, that meant that Chinese nationals were not being accepted by any of any countries, really. And there were really strict regulations with the airlines that would accept them. For example, I couldn't send um, them through Taipei or Thailand or Japan. And if I sent them through Singapore, well, that was a major hub and everyone was coming from Europe. And, you know, if you remember, if you recall, there was a strict quota that the government had imposed on the flights into Australia. For the most part, it was booked out coming into Australia. 
I had to um, use all my connections and work out a plan. Unfortunately, the first plan that I got together from northern China through to Hong Kong and going through the back door of New Zealand fell over airline regulations at the time, airport regulations. And so that was really heartbreaking for everybody because we thought we'd had the solution in that first week. So um, it was really stressful. Also, given that the airlines were being pulled, aircraft would be pulled all over the world and none of the airlines were cooperating. Um, also, visa and COVID restrictions were fluid for absolutely every country. <laughs> so it was a nightmare of looking through rules and regula regulations. But look, I, I felt really that pressure that was on. We had that one week. And so I actually figured out a way to get them home through PNG of all places. Mm. And, but it was, you know, it was going to be a really grueling long trip. And she was going to have to do two weeks isolation in Brisbane on top of that. One of the biggest worries there though was that the airline schedule changes were happening all the time. So we were really worried that there was a transit stop. And I believe, you know, there was in the end, inevitably that happened. There was a problem in Shanghai where um, she wasn't allowed to go out of the airport, but Luckily, Michael would be able to tell you more about this. He had DFAT on board. He had DFAT on board. That was insane. <laughs> we were tracking her constantly. And I was tracking all the surrounding flights. And it really was like a countdown. I mean, we were just, I don't know, we were just biting our nails, weren't we, guys? We were just like... <laughs> And there was emails flying between us all, like, you know, because um, there were so many things that happened during that time as well. It was the joy of seeing her arrive into Brisbane and getting some videos from Saddam. Did you have to get new carpet in your lounge rooms where you'd pace the floor? <laughs> there were, yes. There were some late night calls, that's for sure, right? Thanks, Sue. I know, I do know you personally and you were living in our building at the time and I, I know how, how difficult this was for you yeah. and how much cheering you were doing when it actually happened. But for Saddam, after three long years, knowing that Nadilla and Lofty were safe in Brisbane, firstly, how did that feel? Uh, I felt so relieved, um, especially once she left the Papua New Guinea, arrived like in Brisbane area, is this really true? Yep, yeah. Were there tears <laughs> of joy? Yeah, even even now I'm thinking about it just on a <laughs> great man. If you're interested in getting more involved in our community, connecting with people who share your interests, you can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. In terms of you actually meeting again with Nadilla and, and your son Lofty for the first time, can you walk us through that? Were you on your own? To be honest, when she came to Brisbane, I was so relieved, so happy, but she's going to have two weeks quarantine and then we thought maybe going to meet her in Sydney with Michael in the airport. At that time, I don't know, like, I was so scared because... We've been talking on the phone always. I never seen Lutfi. I don't. I went to the toy store actually to buy a toy. To I went to the toy store and then I realized I don't know what he likes. You know, 
and he's three years old and you don't know what he's like, yeah. And I was scared to meet her. Is Lutfi going to run away? Is Nadila going to like me? Because we've been talking three years over the phone, but we never really openly because her phone was monitored. So Michael was next to me and I, I believe Michael was talking to me lots of things at the airport, but to be honest, I didn't hear anything he said. Like, <laughs> I was so nervous. I was I was at the point, should I run away, you know? And, and Michael, what was he like? Could you, did you know he wasn't listening to a word you said? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, it was, it was a unique situation. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I can't imagine what it would be like meeting my own child for the first time, you know, at that um, age. I, I can still feel the energy that that um, Saddam was mm. was radiating while we were waiting. He was, you know, just yeah, pulsing as I described it in the book. And and I feel the terror that that he had about you know the unknown that he was about to be pitched into because the you know the weight had been so long and it had been so singular. You know, his focus had just been on this one thing for so yeah. long, for so yeah. many years, and then suddenly, you know, here we, we were waiting and it was real and, that, and they were about to emerge and then what? And so it was, I can't, I don't know, I, I find it hard to describe the experience. I mean, I was very privileged to be there, to be with them and, but it was funny. I mean, it, it, yeah, it was quite weird at first, and you know, awkward and 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 scary and and so on. And then you know, we went and got the bags and we got a put them. We got in a taxi to to go into the city. And Lutfi is such a delightful child. Like he is gorgeous, and <laughs> and he got over his you know his sort of uncertainty and nervousness really quickly. Uh, more quickly than Saddam did, and <laughs> they, so they, I dropped them at their hotel, and we'd arranged. I think it was the next day. I wanted the, my staff to, to have the opportunity to to meet them, so they came in to our office for, for morning tea, and we were just sort of marched into this you know law office in this foreign country where he didn't speak a word of the language and and just took over. <laughs> Uh, and, oh, that's gorgeous. Uh, yeah, I and mean, he's, uh, he's literally the most delightful child you could meet. And it very quickly all felt quite normal and, you know, kind of run of the mill. Like, there's just a young family with a young kid. And everything that had happened to lead up to that was, was in the category of extraordinary. How has Nadilla adjusted to life in Australia? Did it take her very long? Uh, in the beginning, yeah, because she'd been going through lots of trauma, you know. That firstly, definitely it's different language in mm-hmm. here and different culture, food is different. It's, it, but more importantly, like, she was a bit scared. Like, she also feels like someone is following her. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, once when she see the police car siren, like, it trigger her memory, like, because... That's what's happening in Xinjiang all the time. Like, oh. So it took, I think, a couple of months to think she's safe now. 
I guess it's a bit like PTSD, huh, Michael? Yeah. Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, it's, you know, it's worth remembering that, you know, there was a period in the peak of things when we were, well, it was during the week when we went down to Parliament and we were campaigning most loudly for for action and, you know, Saddam had made the, the very brave choice to go public and identify himself and identify his family and that placed Nadula at extreme risk. And she was detained by the police, I think, eight times in six days during that period, you know, just constantly arrested, interrogated, and and just being monstered by the, the Chinese police. She certainly has had a lot of trauma to deal with, and you would expect that's, that's quite long-term work to, to recover from to that. To work through. Yeah, mm. look, that must be incredible. But, look, here they are safely. For your family now, are there more? I mean, my family. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've got another two little ones. Oh. Uh, we got a brother. His name is Latif. He's two years old. He's more cuter than Latif's two years old. Oh, come on. <laughs> and the little one just turned uh, four months old now. Oh. So I've got the three boys. Oh, three boys. <laughs> that, makes, that makes us really busy. Oh, I can just imagine three boys would make you really busy. Look, I think it's a wonderful story of of hope, but, oh, my God, the, the journey along the way. And, look, I'd, I'd like to encourage people to read the book, Freeing My Family, because it's an incredible read. I mean, we're only touching on the surface of this story, but there's so much went on. And those terrorising interviews that the police kept bring, bringing Nadilla in, you know, every time I read one, you think, oh, my God, is she going to get out of this one? And to and fro and to and fro, it must have been a horrible time for every one of you thinking about, you know, what's going to happen. Saddam, what message of hope can you share with others who are facing challenges or obstacles in their lives? I would say I think just born in Australia is a really good thing, you know, like that's that's a, that makes 100 times better than us. Mm-hmm. So you need to, I think, appreciate every little thing you have. My dad used to tell me, like, when you study, compare yourself with a good student. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's a good thing to say, but in life, compare yourself with the poor people, like the people who's less fortunate than you, you know? Even that three and a half years has been really a struggle, but I think that's the thing keeps me alive. Every time I was suicidal or thinking to end my life, I'm thinking about there's much worse people than me. Some people can't even have a food in their table, you know. Mm. So I would mm. say just don't give up. Everything will pass, even the good thing and the bad thing. I thought just seeing my wife was a dream, but actually it happened, you know. And, Michael, a message of hope that you would share with others on, a, on after this particular journey, what would you say to people? Yeah, I... I think it's something that Saddam taught me. Even the most hopeless-seeming situation isn't. It really was his belief that carried all of us through. It's the thing that we all connected to. It's the reason that so many people pitched in because we bought into his belief. And we're all really fortunate that we got the opportunity to play you know, a small part in, in what ended up being 
an extremely happy story. I count it as the most rewarding experience of my whole extremely long career. And I feel very lucky that I had that opportunity. It's almost life-changing for you. It really, you know, it's something you really made a difference in, you know, bringing this family together. It's extraordinary. And Sue, for you too, to actually work on something like this and the pressure of the role in actually just getting them to the country, it was one of the very last things that had to happen. But incredibly hard for, well, two reasons, getting them out of China, but also COVID and everything that was happening here at the time. Yeah. And can I just say there was hope for me too personally because at that time my industry was really suffering, like really suffering. And um, this was a good story. This was not a story, another story of travel agents trying to get money back for their clients. This was a good story that the travel industry were able to really look at and go, wow, we can do these things still. There's a need for us because there was a point where we didn't think there was a need for us anymore. It was all over for us. There was, uh, you know, there was a ripple effect in my world in many, many ways, and I'm very grateful to be part of it. Well, Saddam, I really hope for you that life here and for your three boys and Nadilla (laughs) is a wonderful one and that, You know, you deserve all the joy and the love that you can find here in Australia. I'm going to put a link on my website to the book. I'll talk to you guys about that later. So as as people who want to read more about this story, because we've really, as I said, touched on the surface. And I'd love people to leave their comments. Go to my website and leave some comments Wouldn't the world be a better place and a kinder place if we all respected the rights of one another to live here on this planet in peace? And last night when I was laying in bed, I was thinking about John Lennon. And do you know the song I'm going to mention? Imagine. Imagine. (laughs) Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope one day you'll join us and the world will live as one. Beautiful. Michael Bradley, Saddam and Susan Barton, thank you so much for allowing me to share this story I'm learning how much that sharing stories is changing lives. Saddam, you are a very brave man. I'm not sure you're as brave as your wife, Nadilla. Oh, I don't think so. She's she's more brave. I think you went through hell here, but she went through a much bigger hell there. But um, stay safe and thank you all of you for this time together. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. We'd like to invite you to support us by purchasing a Backstage Pass, costing about the same as two cups of coffee each month. With the Backstage Pass, you'll gain access to workshops and exclusive content, including videos from our live events. You can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. We can continue to show that sharing stories changes lives. 